BridgeBank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to those committed to leveraging innovation to make the world a better place. BridgeBank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. BridgeBank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, it was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, Amazon has managed to thwart the most serious effort by organized labor to date to establish a union at one of its warehouses. Workers in Bessemer, Alabama, rejected unionization by about a two-to-one margin, though appeals are possible. We get the latest on the vote and then talk with writer Alec McGillis, whose latest book, Fulfillment, takes a deep dive into Amazon's business practices and how they both shape and reflect America. Join us. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. With the final vote tally in for the effort to organize the first Amazon warehouse in the U.S., Bessemer, Alabama workers will not be unionizing. The result is a victory for Amazon, which has seen its profits soar during the pandemic and a defeat of organized labor's most serious effort to date to unionize workers that even drew support in February from President Biden. You should all remember the National Labor Relations Act didn't just say that unions are allowed to exist. It said that we should encourage unions. So let me be really clear. It's not up to me to decide whether anyone should join a union. But let me be even more clear. It's not up to an employer to decide that either. The choice to join a union is up to the workers. Full stop. Full stop. We're joined now by Eli Rosenberg, economics reporter covering work and labor for The Washington Post. Eli Rosenberg, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me on. So the union effort appears to have gone down by a two-to-one margin or so with, what, 55% of the workers in the warehouse casting ballots. Fair to say this is a pretty decisive defeat for the union? Yeah, that's that's safe to say. There was great turnout in this election, but as you point out, more than a two-to-one margin Um, a thousand vote gap between uh, voters who voted against the union and those who voted for it. 
um, this was a pretty um, robust pushback of uh, a drive that obviously had a lot of attention across the country. That thousand vote gap means that even with the ballots that were challenged, as we understand, mostly by Amazon, it is not a margin that would be large enough to reverse the union's defeat here. That's correct. Um, This does not mean that this particular debate is over either. However, the union uh, plans to file some unfair labor practices, complaints that we could see adjudicated um, and potentially other other union fights at Amazon in the future as well. Remind us what some of those unfair labor practice accusations are. Well, um, Amazon, like many other companies facing a union drive, um, employees trying to form a union employed a lot of aggressive tactics to push back on that. Um, of particular contention is was the installation of a USPS mailback box in front of the facility, um, which was done with the USPS, um, but did not have USPS markings on it, which uh, may form the basis of a, of a legal complaint. Um, Amazon also employed things like captive audience meetings. Um, it was involved in changing the traffic lights in front of the facility and what uh, organizers said was a bid to, to prevent, to make their work harder to, from accessing employees to talk about the union. Um, and Amazon obviously says that, that these were sort of routine issues that um, had nothing to do largely with the, the union effort. They were actually able to control a traffic light and the accusation is that by controlling the traffic light, they shortened the time that cars were stopped and union organizers were able then to talk to workers who were entering or leaving the warehouse? Correct. And then in addition to that, you're talking about the mailbox. Why is the mailbox a concern? Well, uh, this was a mail-in election. Mm -hmm. Uh, Amazon had pushed for it to be done in person. The union had pushed for it to be done by mail. Obviously, we're in the middle still of a pandemic, um, and the NLRB sided with the union on that front. So you have uh, employees returning ballots to the company uh, by mail. Um, Amazon creating this sort of formal mailbox in the front, um, I think worried some that gave the impression that they had some control over the process that they were influencing um, or potentially overseeing workers' ability to to vote fairly in the election. And do you think those are some pretty strong cases that the NLRB will find, you know, pretty substantive? They're interesting cases for sure. Um, You know, it's a new era in Washington. Um, We have new personnel in place, um, and it's not clear how the NLRB will come down on this stuff. But obviously one of the more pro-labor climates uh, in the Capitol that we've seen in many decades. Yes, we just heard that clip from President Biden. And as you say, it's probably the most labor-friendly administration in a very long time. So given that, Eli Rosenberg, do you think that this defeat will blunt interest and momentum in other warehouses to try to organize a union? Well, that's the subject of a lot of debate right now. I've seen some chatter amongst union organizers saying they never should have brought this unit up for a vote um, if they didn't have more solid base of support because of the potential it has to sort of dampen enthusiasm amongst other workers, either at Amazon facilities or just other workers out there in general. Um, This kind of underscores the many barriers that workers hoping to organize face. And, you know, given the risks that workers hoping to organize face, you know, if the barriers are so high, it's reasonable to expect plenty of people do the calculation in their heads and say, well, this, this just isn't simply worth it. On the other hand, 
um, you know, this sort of feels like the, the opening chapter of, of a new book here. We have a new administration in Washington. We have a new climate. Um, this union drive got an incredible amount of attention. It drew an incredible amount of attention to not only what's happening at the plant in Bessemer, how workers are treated at Amazon, but also just larger issues in terms of workers' rights, their ability to organize, um, the unionization process. And so, you know, there is an argument as well on the other side that that even in defeat, um, that message has been spread to a wider audience and, and that could lead to further further success down the road. Yes, I wonder, do people in Alabama know how closely this election is being watched from the outside? They have to. I mean, like you played that clip of the president um, a couple weeks ago. Obviously, he didn't mention Amazon by name, but just issuing that video was something we haven't seen from the White House in many decades. People like Senator Bernie Sanders going to visit. Um, a whole chorus of labor leaders um, visiting in person. So um, again, you know, got a lot of an attention, but you know, these often do remain sort of local local debates and local disputes that that turn on on how people in those areas uh, feel. Whenever we have reporters who cover the Washington who cover Amazon who work for the Washington Post, we're sort of obligated to mention that the Washington Post is owned by Amazon founder Jeff Bezos. Is it awkward for you to be reporting on Amazon when CEO Jeff Bezos owns the Post? Are you asked that a lot? Well, we report on Amazon like we report on any other company. Look, Amazon is hugely important company. Um, It's growing by the day. It's now the second largest employer in this country. Um, It's true that we're owned by Jeff Bezos, but, um, you know, I I report to a series of editors um, that is completely separate from that. Well, Eli Rosenberg, we appreciate reporting and are glad you came on today. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. Eli Rosenberg, labor reporter for The Washington Post. We're joined now by Alec McGillis, author of the book Fulfillment, Winning and Losing in One-Click America, also politics and government reporter for ProPublica. And Alec McGillis, thanks so much for joining us. Well, thanks for having me. Given that your latest book looks at how the U.S., its cities, states, economy, and workers' lives have been impacted by Amazon, I have to ask you, what's your reaction to this vote? Um, I, I've been following it closely you know, from, from Baltimore, where I live, and it, it, it was incredibly striking that they even managed to get to the point where they were holding an election in in the deep south of all places. And I, of course, dearly wish that, that the election had been announced before my book went to press because it was a major development. But I was also <laughs> well well aware of just how, how um, as Eli mentioned, how long the odds were um, in, in a vote like this. And I would have been very, I would have been, would have been definitely strike, striking if they had managed to pull it off. Um, I, I, the stakes are enormous. I mean, the, 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 my book, you know, spends a whole sort of very core chapter. My book is about the incredible transformation of work in this country from, from sort of mass working class labor shifting from manufacturing work um, to, to warehouse work. And, and, and I actually focus on one one place in outside Baltimore where, he, where that, that happened on the exact same piece of land where you went from, um, a, a huge steel mill, the largest steel mill in the world, has now been replaced by a bunch of warehouses, um, including two Amazon warehouses. And 
and so you have basically gone from jobs that were paying $35 an hour um, in the mill to, and, and, when you, and were unionized, of course, to now warehouse jobs paying $15 an hour and not unionized. And, and the, you know, the whole question of what, what this kind of new kind of work in the, in the warehouses is going to look like for years to come, whether it can be lifted up to something that's more sustainable, better paid, with more say on the job, does depend in part on whether, whether workers will, will be able to, to organize as they organized in those manufacturing jobs of yore. And, and so this, this was a first big, big test of that. And, and I really do see the stakes as being, being that large and kind of in, in, in those large, large historical terms. Can we once again kind of lift up a, a certain form of work so that it becomes something that is more valued and, and, um, and you know, work, that, that workers can really make a middle class, some kind of semblance of a middle class family sustaining, career sustaining kind of work out of. It's interesting, though, you said that it would have been incredibly significant if they were able to pull this off. The fact that they haven't, does that mean that things haven't substantively changed in your view? Um, like what is the impact the, of the defeat, I guess? We'll have to see. I mean, we'll, I think we'll have to wait. I wouldn't want to rush to judgment on that to see whether it, whether this, in fact, does um, dampen efforts elsewhere, um, because there has been a lot of ferment in other warehouses, other places around the country, or if, in fact, it is it is an opening an opening battle with more to come and where there's lessons learned and, 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 and in a sense, it's just a first step. It's, I, I wouldn't, I, it would be, I think, premature to, to, to gauge that. I mean, there, you are definitely, as Eli alluded to, seeing already some second guessing among um, supporters of organized labor and people in that world have, have actually been quietly second guessing the decision to go ahead with this election mm. for some time now. Um, and it was, you know, and it's a tough call. You know, on the one hand, you you definitely want to um, give things a shot, and and you uh, because the stakes are so large, because it's so um, important for the future of this kind of work that there are efforts at actually organizing warehouses, and 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 there was some sense that that the company was now somewhat more vulnerable coming out of the pandemic when there's all the more attention to to how. How tough the conditions are in the warehouses, and just how hugely successful the company was during the pandemic. So, I yes. Well, we'll have more with you, Alec McGillis, after the break. Stay with us. We're talking about Amazon. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. 
Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Joining me is ProPublica journalist Alec McGillis, whose latest book looks at how the U.S., its cities, states, economy, and workers have been impacted by Amazon. His new book is titled Fulfillment, Winning and Losing in One-Click America. We're also talking about the latest results of the union vote, and I want to invite you, our listeners, to join the conversation. What role does Amazon play in your life? What are your thoughts on what the union vote means for Amazon, for organized labor, for the country moving forward. Give us a call 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum or email your questions to forum at kqed.org. I want to read just a quick statement from Amazon after the union vote. Amazon stated, quote, it's easy to predict the union will say that Amazon won this election because we intimidated employees, but that's not true. Our employees heard far more anti-Amazon messages from the union, policymakers, and media outlets than they heard from us, and Amazon didn't win. Our employees made the choice to vote against joining a union. wanted to uh, read that after you were commenting, Alec McGillis, about just the broader implications and sort of the soul searching that organized labor is doing right now uh, in the aftermath of this. Though I do wonder, as I had asked Eli earlier, if you do feel like ultimately the bigger picture for labor is potentially brighter than this one defeat. Um, it's, look, I mean, I think we have to be very candid about the, the situation for organized labor in this country is 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 where we sort of sit historically is is not is not good i mean the we we are now down to i think about six percent of of all private sector workplaces being being organized that's a drop from about 25 or 30 percent decades ago and 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 it, the the laws are the laws as they're written are are so make things make it so hard to to organize that's why you see again and again these attempts to to, to actually change the laws to change the ground rules around organizing the, the the last time we came close to doing that was in the obama administration and um and and they were a couple shorts votes short of, of a filibuster to get it done then um and now there's another there's another legislation um that's that's proposed now to to try to address this once again. Um, that is that is one that's a really the fundamental issue that that has to be, you know, looked at. If um, before each of these elections as they come up are always so tough because because the ground rules are tough. And so, um, if if people who really want to build up private sector organizing, you know, know that we do actually have to address the legislation along with each individual fight that that comes along. Um, with with the you know with Amazon in, in particular, on the one hand, the the warehouses are 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 actually fertile ground for organizing in the future, given that they are unlike other other new kind of modern workplaces like Uber and other gig work like like that. They're they're actually workers in the in a in a physical place that are working together in large numbers, and that can conceivably be organized in in the sort of traditional fashion, in a way that a lot of gig workers are harder to to um to build something around. So it's it's not completely hopeless, but it, there's so much. 
there's so much stacked against them. The company is incredibly successful at, at fending these efforts off. The, the fact that the workers, that these workplaces are so transient is such a, another massive um, obstacle. You have really almost a 100% turnover typically at a lot of these warehouses. It makes it really hard to, to build any kind of solidarity. And just the fact that workers, I think this is one of the key things, that workers have just, their, their expectations have been so diminished over the years that um, that when a union comes along and says, you can expect more, you can expect more say, you can expect more pay, um, you deserve more, it's, it's, it's tougher to make that argument when workers have just had to become accustomed to to making do with what they get so to the point where they they look in the, at the company's argument that, hey, look, $15 is better than than minimum wage is better than the fast food job. And and some workers are, are accepting of that argument because it's hard for them to even imagine more for themselves. Um, and 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 so that's that that is what 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 the unions are, are up against. It's it's no by no means hopeless. I think one thing to keep in mind is that that there's other ways of going about this too. It's not just about organizing, uh, actually trying to win organizing elections. There are other kind of um, actions that that workers have already been taking at warehouses, you know, strikes or or various kinds of sit downs and slowdowns and walkouts. Um, that that's that's another form of activism and and, and for, uh, attempts at leverage that workers have been using at warehouses. And I think you're going to see probably see more of those kind of efforts as well. It's interesting that you talk about the lack of solidarity or camaraderie in these sort of isolated environments that these workers are working in. Uh, you write about how you actually open the book with a, a story of a, a man named Hector Torres who lost his tech job actually in the Bay Area, moved with his wife to Denver to escape the Bay Area's high housing costs, couldn't find work and lived off his wife for a while until she basically gave him an ultimatum. So he goes to get a job at an Amazon warehouse working nights. And I just want to read a brief description of how you talk about his experience there. It's a paragraph from your introduction that begins with, he lifted a lot of boxes, some as heavy as 50 pounds. The challenge wasn't so much the weight as that you couldn't really tell based on size whether a box was going to be heavy or not when you went to pick it up. Your body and your mind would never know what to expect. He wore a back brace for a while, but it would get so hot that he felt like he was being cooked. His elbow tendonitis flared up. He often walked more than a dozen miles per shift, according to his Fitbit. He thought the device must be wrong and got a new pedometer, but it said the same thing. He put on a topical numbing cream before he went to work, took ibuprofen pills when he was at work, and when he got home, stood on ice packs, put ice on his elbow, and soaked his feet in Epsom salt. He switched shoes often to spread the impact across the soul. Can you talk about why the work at the warehouse first is so physically taxing? It's so physically taxing because workers are under, are under extraordinary pressure to, um, to 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 fulfill as many orders as possible. I mean, it's very simple. We as consumers have been, especially this past year, have been um, basically putting these warehouses under kind of ho Christmas holiday level of purchasing and ordering, um, and for an entire year. And um, because we decided that we were going to get meet all of our needs um, through 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 e-commerce and have people bring things to our homes. And so so these workers were, were the ones who were getting those orders. When we made that click, it went to people like Hector Torres and they were under extraordinary pressure um, to to ramp up their their productivity. And, and it worked, the work's always been tough in the warehouses, but it got even tougher. Um, and in, you know, in a way, one, one way to think about this is that we've replaced 
retail work, um, the, the kind of retail work that used to happen in stores, um, where you would have a you know clerks at cash registers or walking in the floor and um, in all the different kind of jobs that went into being a, a retail clerk, have now been replaced by these jobs in the warehouses. Except these jobs in the warehouses are more like factory jobs. They're more like assembly line jobs, um, but they're not paid like factory jobs. They're um, so you end up in this kind of new kind of netherworld where it's both much more physically taxing work than the retail work of, of, of years past, but it's also not, um, not as sustainable paid as well, or, or as, um, as, you know, um, and also not, not really as purposeful as, as the factory work that it resembles, at least factory work, you were making something in these jobs. You're just, you're just picking and packing and stowing things that were made halfway around the world. And the title of your book uses the frame one click. Can you talk about what that means? Because you just said it again here in terms of us as consumers. Sure. Well, one click was, um, was you know, it's, it's, of course, an allusion to, to Amazon's initial promise of the one click purchase. They actually, um, years ago, um, patented that phrase um, and, and and actually got into some fights with other companies that tried to sort of claim it for themselves but that was that was that's always been their promise of just this extraordinary convenience um, extraordinary ease of ordering and then the the very rapid delivery of two days and now even one day sometimes and 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 this book is in some sense an attempt to show you the whole ecosystem that lies behind that one click um, from from the, the incredibly taxing work inside the warehouses um, to to the whole the rest of the supply chain the, the the man in Dayton Ohio making cardboard boxes for eleven dollars an hour um, and the, the drivers and, and but then also just the broader impact the broader impact not just not just some people in the supply chain um, but um, the, the small businesses that that are that are being um, supplanted and coerced to, to to sort of start selling through Amazon, and then just the, the the effect even more probably beyond that, the effect on cities, the effect on on cities that have the cities that have become sort of the headquarter cities like Seattle and Washington D.C. that are now, and, and of course the Bay Area that are now hyper prosperous uh, to the point of of being really almost kind of dystopian in the levels of wealth and inequality, and then the all the, the left behind cities that have essentially lost their um, their sort of local retail commerce and seen all that kind of commerce and business activities um, sort of suck to those to the winner take all cities. This the the effect that that's that's the whole one click effect. It's everything that lies behind the one click, and that has created just this these incredible imbalances around the country um, and left us so 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 very much off kilter. Yes, really a, a concern, it feels like, in terms of the demise of the social fabric of the United States permeates your book. In so many ways, you're talking about how invisible all of these processes are behind our one click, but you also narrow it down into the warehouse itself, how isolated workers are from each other to the point where, as you alluded to earlier, it makes it incredibly difficult to come together and organize in solidarity, for example, um, around what they hoped the union would provide. Can you just describe a little bit about the isolation in these factories, how it contributes to a broader, um, basically, lack of knowledge of each other <laughs> uh, in these places? 
Sure. I mean, it's, it is, it, 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 it is a, one of the big obstacles to, to any kind of organizing that you don't, it's so hard to get any kind of sense of solidarity and fellowship when you, when you really are, um, you barely get to know people at all in, in the warehouse. You're, you're sort of in your spot um, across this, in these, they're, they're massive spaces, of course, just, you know, 18, 18, 19 football fields um, wide and long. And, and, and so you're there, um, maybe you're on your own in your forklift, just driving things, pallets off the trucks um, and into the, into the warehouse, or maybe you're all standing by yourself at one of the, at one of the stowing stations where you're just um, taking, taking things, essentially taking things that have been brought into the warehouse and, and sticking them into shelves and these sort of stacks of shelves that come to you on robots and you stick um, things into empty boxes in the shelves, or you're one of the pickers who's standing off on your, on your own, just picking things out of the, the shelves that have been uh, requested, demanded by us consumers, um, or you're, or you're standing by yourself packing boxes. Um, but so much of the work is, is done alone. And, and, and actually that's gotten even more, um, more so in the past year in their attempt to make the, to keep people from catching COVID from each other. They, a lot of jobs that did involve a couple people working together were turned into one person jobs. So uh, they, in the past, loading trucks with 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 completed boxes um, was was a two person job, and that's now a one person job. And other other jobs like that, where now you are all alone, where before maybe you were not. And I, I and this of course con- contrasts so much with um, with the the work you know in a, what, what work was like in in a place like a steel mill, where you was much more. Uh, camaraderie, much more fellowship, much more need to work together on, on various parts of the operation, and um, and to the point where you, when you would leave work, of course, you often left as a group, and you would you know you you kind of roll off together and often roll right into the bar or the diner or whatever it might be. And whereas now these warehouses, I was talking to a former steel worker in Baltimore who lives right near one of the the warehouses that's replaced the steel mill, and he's he comment noted the fact that when people now leave those warehouse jobs from Amazon, they just go screaming out of the parking lot at high speeds, such high speeds that they've had to put speed bumps in to, to slow people down. They're just desperate to get out of there. They're just, they've gone and done their time, and then they're going to they're going to fly home, and and there's no sense of of any kind of like sort of togetherness outside the workplace. I, I brought this up in a in, in another discussion, a radio discussion in New York, and and a worker called in and he said, yeah, he said, look, there's no way in the world that I'm going to go have a beer with Joe after my shift. He said, I don't even know who Joe is. Joe might be fi- only 50 feet away, but I have no who- idea who he is. It's just a w- entirely more atomized kind of experience, and which which of course is going to deter organizing. We're talking about who wins and loses from the massive growth of tech and retail giant Amazon with Alec McGillis, author of Fulfillment, Winning and Losing in One Click America. And let me bring our callers in. Susan in Oakland, join us. Hi, Susan. Oh, thank you so much. This is so important. Thank you, Alex. Um, I've been a union organizer. I've worked in these in some of these places long ago, not recently. But when workers try to organize a union, or when workers go to work, they leave their rights at the door. Inside, and when you, I would love you to feature some workers who have been through these experiences. The suppression, the intimidation, the harassment, the 
um, challenge to people's dignity by the way that they're treated is unbelievable. And it's just so sad when the media looks at these things and says, that, you know, the union lost, the union didn't lose, society lost, the workers lost. We see the decline of our country, income inequality, the rise of low-wage jobs. It's because the corporate power um, to control workers' lives inside of, you know, plants, factories, every workplace is just has grown immensely. The, the penalties against employers who break the law are nothing. And, and we have to make the workers' rights to vote for a union, to have rights on the job. If we're going to really rebuild this country out of all of the decay that we see right now and the workers living on the edge, we have to make as important workers' rights to vote freely and fairly or to be recognized when a majority of them sign cards as important as voting rights for elections. Um, it's so important that most industrialized countries have card check. If a majority of workers sign a card and that's verified and validated, then their union is recognized. That happens in Canada and Europe. And so I just the, the PRO Act is really important in this country, protect the right to organize. It's now coming. It came out of the House. It's going into the Senate. It's going to be a really tough uphill battle. But if we really want to turn this country around, it is important to give every single worker the right to vote freely and fairly. You see Amazon and Walmart and all yeah. these companies. Well, thank Susan, you. Thank, yeah, thank you for sharing your thoughts. I, I I do want to wrap my mind around just how big Amazon's gotten since even the pandemic began, Alec McGillis. Oh, it's, I mean, it's hard to wrap your mind around it because it's, it's been just it's so extraordinary. They, the, com this, the company was already huge with um, more than um, 100 fulfillment centers around the country, um, you know, hundreds of thousands of, of workers. Well, it's now added... Um, 400,000 more employees just in the past year. It's now, you know, it's the second only to Walmart in, in employment in the country and gaining fast. It's sales were already enormous uh, with, you know, they already had 40, more than 40% of all e-commerce sales in the country. Um, but they've now, their sales have gone up 40% just in the past year. They've had to add about 50% more warehouse space. Um, their their stock went up about 85% over the year. Bezos's personal wealth grew by 58 billion over the course of, of the past year. Um, and yeah, that, and that was, um, that was all our doing. We have to be, you know, you know, blunt about that like that is this happened because there was just a major shift um among consumers you know, a lot of people who might have felt some um compunction before about about kind of using amazon heavily decided that they now had the sort of permission and approval from from the sort of the public health authorities to to go that route and and mm. not only not only you know made these purchases with with uh, without a feeling of compunction, but almost with but almost with a sense of virtue, um, and um, so yes, and, and yeah, big, it's grown uh, dramatically as a result. Alec McGillis, we'll talk with him more about Amazon after the break. Stay with us. I'm Mina Kim. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary.
This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're joined by ProPublica journalist Alec McGillis, whose latest book looks at how the U.S. has been impacted by Amazon. It's titled Fulfillment, Winning and Losing in One-Click America. And we're hearing from you, our listeners, about the role Amazon plays in your life. What questions do you have for Alec McGillis about the company and about how it's a broader metaphor for changes that have been happening in the United States? Have you worked for Amazon in some capacity? If you'd like to share that experience, feel free to do that as well. Uh, let me read a few comments coming in. Michael tweets, the organizing campaign was a bold move in a state that's been right to work since 1953. The state's hostility to unions attracts foreign auto plants like Mercedes, Honda, and Toyota. Washington State has the fifth highest percentage of union workers. Why not organize there? Judith Marie writes, for the past 13 months, we've depended mostly on Amazon to provide us with food as we sheltered in place. Learning of the company's working conditions, the money they put into the union vote, and my belief in local businesses, I will be canceling my Prime account at the end of this month. And Bonnie tweets, all boats rise with a rising tide, quote, so give tax cuts to the, quote, job-creating corporations. This and other anti-union propaganda has been very effective in getting American workers to cheat themselves out of livable wages. Alec McGillis, Bonnie's quote about tax cuts reminds me of the section in your book where you talk about how Amazon has been very successful in extracting tax breaks and other local incentives. Uh, to bring jobs to cities. It's true of other large corporations as well, Walmart, sports teams. What does Amazon do that's so different from these other companies? What Amazon does is just that's different is the sheer um, variety of different tax avoidance um, strategies that it employs. I mean, it, it's basically avoiding taxes at all different levels um, in a way that's really quite impressive. It Going all the way back, of course, to, the, to the, their initial advantage against brick and mortar retail, which is that they that they initially didn't really have to assess sales taxes in most places. So you, they immediately had a five or six or 7% advantage against uh, other retailers. And they, and they, and they, managed to maintain that advantage for a long time by where they put their operations. They put their op their headquarters in Seattle, so, partly so that they would not have to assess sales taxes in California. If they'd gone to Silicon Valley, like other tech companies, then they would have had to assess sales taxes on sales in the biggest market in the country. So they went to a small state where that wouldn't matter as much. Um, and then they kept um, basically deciding not to put warehouses, holding off and putting warehouses in other big states so they would not have to assess sales taxes there. Um, so there's that basic sales tax avoidance. Then there was, then at the federal level, they're very, very, very uh, adept at avoiding federal income taxes by putting, um, you know, by doing a lot of the, the sort of the, the offshore Luxembourg uh, kind of tax shelter game, and also just claiming massive, massive losses over the years to sort of count against their uh, deduct from their from their profits. It's important to note that they're so successful at this that they actually pay. A couple of years ago, they paid zero in federal income taxes in 2018, and 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 in this, they're actually different than say a Walmart. You know, Walmart is no angel, and they're. They do everything they can to avoid taxes as well, but they they actually end up paying a lot more in federal income taxes than does Amazon. They, um, I think, the same year that Amazon had zero income ta income taxes, Walmart had maybe thirty five billion or so. Um, they're just they're, by the nature of their of their sort of business model and their operations, it's harder for them to to get away with paying zip the way that Amazon did. But then, the, then the final thing they do, of course, is, as you mentioned, that they're very aggressive in seeking actual tax subsidies and tax reductions when they go into communities um, 
with their warehouses and data centers um and 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 the book just lays bare a lot of those sort of negotiations and not just the negotiations themselves but how amazon also demands secrecy from communities mm-hmm. um and that they that demands that they reveal as little as possible about these uh, about the deals that they that they're giving them what does it say to you though alec mcgillis that a lot of these cities or local entities want or maybe need is a better word amazon to be there because it, because it is the second largest employer in the country and that particular place may not have a major employer anymore yeah that that's and that is why they're uh, they're so desperate just to get any kind of jobs at all. Um, and what, what what what's confounding about it though is that is that these warehouses, Amazon needs to have these warehouses in certain places because to, to make the one day two day delivery promise work, it needs to be just what everywhere now. So it's not it's if if a community were were to withhold subsidies um, from a given proposed warehouse, it's not like the like like the company could just. Amazon could just go off to some other state, 300 miles south. It needs to be there, and and so it, it does make it, um, uh, you know, make you make you kind of wonder why why communities feel that they're that they're in such a poor bargaining position, um, and 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 what this and what this also overlooks, or what what it, you know, the cost of this, of course, is that when you when they turn over these subsidies, is that it's not just that they're eroding their local tax base, they're they're leaving their community less able to support the services, the increased demand for services that the warehouse will bring. The, the warehouse will bring all sorts of wear and tear on the local roads. Um, and then there are also, of course, going to be calls for EMTs to come to the warehouses for, for the frequent injuries that happen there. Um, and and so it's it really, you know, if you step back, it's not, it's, it's in a lot of ways, it's not a very good deal for these for these towns and cities. Let me bring Matt from San Rafael into the conversation. Matt, thanks for calling. Sure. Hi. Uh, my comment is I think you're focusing too much on Amazon here and not the workers. And what Amazon does is take advantage of workers who, from the moment they were capable of understanding English, have heard that unless they have a college degree, they do not deserve to earn enough to feed, clothe, and house themselves. And unless, unless they excel at academics, they are not going to have a, a, a quality standard of living. And I'm 60 years old, and I can never, I don't think I've gone a week in my life without hearing that multiple times. And uh, we, our education system seems to try to polish and, and promote and create people with PhDs and geniuses, but the 99.9% of the work we need done in this country is done by hardworking, dedicated, intelligent people who bring us breakfast, lunch, and dinner, our shoes, our pants, our socks, our automobiles, our houses, and everything we, we need. But they have been humiliated and spoken down to and downtrodden by our education system. I think the education system has created this class of workers that will not stand up and fight for themselves. Hmm. Uh, there's no class on any curriculum anywhere called, I'll go screw yourself. Well, let me get Alec McGillis's reaction. Uh, what do you think of what Matt is raising here? I think he's onto something. I think that it's it goes gets to the diminished expectations that I mentioned earlier, that, that a lot of workers just feel like they, um, you know, do feel... Um, just that they're very low in, in the pecking order, that they don't, that 
given that they don't have, um, you know, all that much education, or all that much skills training, that that fifteen dollars an hour is the best they can hope to get, even though um, the company is is so hugely successful and making so much money off off of their labor, um, and it, that they just feel that they that they sort of hear the company's argument that look, this is more than the minimum wage; it's more than you'd make be making at a, at a fast food job. You're lucky to have it. Um, that 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 a lot of a lot of these these workers are are in fact receptive to, the, to that argument because um, because they have come to yes come to see um, their their lack of um, of a college degree um, or lack of higher education as some kind of a, a great failing and 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 a great great lack and whereas you know decades earlier a worker. Um, did not there, there was not as much of a premium put on the, on that higher education and so a worker with just a high school degree um had had much less compunction about demanding more for himself or herself and let me go next to caller robert in concord hi robert yeah uh, the caller made a point that said that he gave that example of that worker who was uh working you know physically hard and everything and yet he wasn't making the same wages as somebody in a factory so my question is, who gets to decide what your work is worth? Do we let the market decide? Or is this somebody arbitrarily say, you know what, that's a lot of work, you should get paid that? I mean, because I look at the guys fixing the street. They're not making that much money. Should we increase their pay? I yeah. mean, who gets to decide what your work is worth other than the free market? Robert, I mean, if you don't like the work, shouldn't you just leave? Robert, thanks. I mean... Go ahead, Alan, if you want to respond to what Robert's raising. Sure. I mean, I think I, I think of this in historical terms, which is that the um, back in the early 20th century, the the a lot of that manufacturing work, like this or the steel mill work that I mentioned, was much lower paid and and was incredibly grueling and um, and treacherous, and and workers were paid very little for it and, and had faced crazy demands on the job and crazy hours and 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 that was sort of what the market was was in fact sort of setting for them at that time, and and it was in in their case it was in, in other you know in auto industry and other other air sectors it was through organizing partly partly through organizing in the 30s 40s and 50s that 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 kind of work became much better paid, um, and so um, and that and that's the, that is sort of the question now is whether. There will be some kind of similar move to lift up this new kind of mass working class labor in the warehouses to something that's somewhat better paid and somewhat more something that that is somewhat more sustainable and 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 that could actually you know support a something resembling a kind of middle class life family life the way that those manufacturing jobs were able to after they got organized. Let me go to caller Ariane in San Francisco. Join us. Hi, thank you for taking my call. Um, Beyond Bezos being a libertarian who looks out for himself and that being a model in this country of hyper-individualism, which is in the process of changing as people realize they need each other more and more to get to deal with these large problems. There's this other problem of hyper-commercialization where everything has a price tag to it and we're all implicated. 
both as workers and consumers. And this philosophy of getting two for one doesn't mean only underpaying for goods at every step of the way, whether you go through Amazon or Costco or Walmart, but also it means that the employer tries to get the work of two people for one employee, two for one. And that kind of ravaging of each other, that lack of respect both for people and the environment has to come to an end. We must understand that we cannot commodify everything unless we want to kill everything. Ariane, thanks. Alec Michaelis, what is a takeaway that you would like Amazon shoppers to walk away with? And I, I know you yourself have been asked if you shop, you use Amazon and you've said you, you do when you have to, which is also a very telling statement. But but what is something that you you would like folks to think about? I would just like, you know, I, 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 I like a, I've tried to be very careful about this and not and I'm not out there advocating a, a boycott or any kind of any absolutism. Um, it's but I do think it's really important for all of us as as consumers and also citizens now, especially as we're coming out of this year when so much of us went so deep into the into the one click kind of life and 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 daily approach to daily living, that we that we re engage with the world around us and not just in terms of our shopping or our daily shopping, but, but it been all sorts of other things that we, that we're not just, that we're going back out to the, the theater or the concerts, whatever it might be. And not just on Netflix that we're, that we're somehow that we're able to come back out of our, um, out of our hunkering down mode. And as you know, once we, you know, once it's, you know, doable, more, more safer to do so and, and make sure that we kind of leave behind some of these, the, these, these full, full one-click habits and, and, and re-engage with the, our communities in our, in our physical spaces, in our towns and cities. And, and, and because if we don't, there's such a real risk that a lot of these things are just, are, are going to go away that the places that we valued, um, whether they're businesses or, or, or cultural options are just going to wither. And, you know, there's the, the, there's all this talk about, you know, convenience and how convenient it is. And, and the fact is that it was, it's a writer by the name of Tim Wu made the good point that yes, it's more convenient to, to order on Amazon um, than, than drive 15 minutes maybe to, to the hardware store. Um, but um, if you keep doing that, the hardware store is going to go away, and then it'll be even more convenient to stick with Amazon because you're, then the next, then the other other option will be an hour away, and mm. and and it's this very it's a vicious cycle of uh, reinforcing cycle of of convenience, of, and and we have to think more broadly about what what that convenience actually actually means. Well, Tim Wu is, I think, an advisor now in the Biden administration. Do you see a real substantive effort to rein in Amazon at the federal level at this point? something brewing, I guess, in the last minute. I do. I think that there's actually, there are some real prospects for action in Washington. I think the prospects for action action in Washington are probably actually better than the prospects right now for, for organizing. Um, hmm. That there's, there, there are definitely signs that of, of the Biden administration to taking, um, taking uh, a tougher look at, at Monopoly than did the Obama, Obama administration. And, and so I think there's going to be a very interesting fight now in, in Washington over, or, over how we take on these, these new giants. Well, Alec McGillis, I really appreciate you joining us today. Thank you so much. Thank you. It was great. Alec, Alec McGillis is author of the book Fulfillment, Winning and Losing in One-Click America. He's also a politics and government reporter for ProPublica. 
In celebration of National Poetry Month this April, we asked listeners to submit recordings of their original poems for a chance to be featured on air. This week, we're featuring Michael M.J. Jones from Oakland. Hello, my name is Michael M.J. Jones, and this is my poem, Turnstiles. When I first came here, lifted from mother's abdomen-like soil, I had enough live stockpiled to know There is nothing to this myth, getting it right, no matter how many rotations. We spin and spin till we're sick, dizzy, my son and I in centripetal orbit, fleshy, upright turnstiles. We scream a laughter into ether like prayer already answered. He's exhausted his bones by nautical twilight, I gaze between crib bars. Brown skin in deepening dusk, crest and trough his dulcet breath. Oceans tide my looking, perfection my sins may deface. At star rise ceremony, in blackness, I lift him, soft, swift, certain of an uncaging in my chest. Lay him out, just for a moment for apex of breath. Hummingbird heart thrumming against my lifeline. I could weep at my own capacity to hurt him and hurt him again, be the reason he therapies, but for now, I kiss sweet sternum, massage soft tendrils sprung from scalp, and stare into a ceaseless, forgiving night. That was Michael M.J. Jones with their poem, Turnstiles. Thanks to MJ for sharing it with us. Thanks also to our listeners for always sharing your contributions through comments and questions and stories. Thanks to Blanca Torres for producing today's segment. Forum is also produced by Ariana Prail, Caroline Smith, Susan Britton is our lead producer. Our interim senior editor is Judy Campbell. Our engineers are Danny Bringer and Katie McMurrin. Our interns are Leslie Torres and Kimia Akbari. Our executive editor is Ethan Toven Lindsay, and our chief content officer is Holly Kernan. I'm Mina Kim. Thanks so much for listening to Forum and have Have a great weekend. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.